0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lepashko, one of the hosts for the New Books in Asian Studies channel. Today, we are here with Dr. Yen Liu, Assistant Professor of History at Sony Buffalo. Hello, Dr. Liu, and welcome to our channel. Hi. Hi, thank you for agreeing for to talk to us about your new book, Healing with Poisons, Potent Medicines in Medieval China, published in 2021 by University of Washington Press. I'm very excited for, for our conversation today.
0: Thank you I'm very excited to uh, join this interview Thank you Dr. Dubascu, for inviting me to be here
1: Absolutely my pleasure you know and um, I, I think you know as we usually start I wanted to to ask you a few questions about how you came to this project and because you know uh, both myself and the, the listeners would want to know more about uh, you and your work. And I was I was you know actually curious to to know how you got interested in Chinese history and poisons specifically um, medicine and how you know they, they relate so in their relations
0: yeah sure I'd be very happy to share uh, uh, this the history of writing this book uh, as you know every book behind behind publishing the book there's a long history this book involves a decade uh, of work uh, uh perhaps even beyond that. um, So um, speaking of uh, uh, how I get into this field of history medicine uh, in China. So I uh, previously had, have a science background. I was a science student uh, for a while. Uh, And later I became more interested in the humanistic aspect of science and medicine, uh, especially from uh, other different cultures uh, compared to the Western cultures. So I decided eventually to pursue a career uh, in history of science and medicine, which combined my previous expertise with my my interest uh, in in medicine. so And then while I uh, was doing, actually initiating my uh, dissertation research when I was a a PhD student at the time in the history of science department, perhaps uh, influenced by uh, the discipline of history of science, which in the recent decades Pay has paid increasing attention to the material aspect of the inquiry, the materiality, the issue of materiality, uh, be it you know, scientific instruments, specimens, ordinary things uh, used by people. Uh, this uh, and and the intellectual question of the interaction between you know the epistemology and ontology. Uh, these are some of the conceptual background that stimulate my thinking uh, because I, at the time, was interested in the history of Chinese medicine and looking for a topic. I find uh, this is a very good angle to study the history of Chinese medicine because the majority of study by then, that was about uh, 10 years ago when I started this project, uh, most of scholars focus on non-material aspect, either, you know, it's, you know, the theoretical foundation of Chinese medicine, or for example, acupuncture is very prominent, you know, a prominent aspect of Chinese medicine, partly because uh, it's very visible, highly visible in the Western countries. But I thought uh, that, you know, the study of Chinese medicine is above all the study of Chinese Medicines here I use the plural medicines here refer to the medicinal substances, the vast you know uh, uh, the range of material materials used in Chinese pharmacy in the past two thousand years, and this is quite a understudied topic, but it's very important. So that's kind of starting point for me to think about the material practice of medicine in the Chinese context, and then. Furthermore, I realized that, you know, in this broad domain of study of pharmacy and pharmacology in China, I found a paradoxical thing. That is, you know, I encountered, based on my preliminary reading of primary sources, a a great number of poisons deployed in Chinese pharmacy uh, in history, uh, to a certain degree in contemporary practice as well. And this is something interesting to me because this is often... Uh, it contradicts of our popular imagination of Chinese medicine as benign and natural, especially in comparison to Western medicine, which is often considered, you know, toxic with side effects, very violent, uh, artificial. But I find this is an interesting start- starting point to properize this, you know, dichotomy because poisons actually figured very prominently in Chinese medicine in Chinese alchemy, in many corners of society, um, particularly in the formative era of Chinese pharmacology, which uh, here I refer to the first millennium, roughly speaking, the focus of my book. And that's basically the starting point of the journey of of mine to tackle this issue of you know, what does poison mean in Chinese context? How do people use use it, use them? Um, in history, uh, what kind of change I can detect it uh, in the early stage of Chinese pharmacology in terms of the understanding and use of poisons, uh, the, the, the role of the state, uh, the, role, the role of religious practitioners, how they understood poisons and used poisons differently, and what were the connections between them. So all these various questions arose and uh, which ocup- occupied me in the past <laughs> 10 years uh, to, to write this book. Yeah,
1: these are very broad questions, and I, I can see how they can you know spin into other questions, and um, you know the, the amount of, uh, of 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 research and of details that that you put into the book it's, it's simply astonishing. So um, you know I I yeah I see how this you know can be can be a journey, but it's also uh, in my opinion, it's not something that you know ends with with the book. Um, I I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe there's a second or a third book on specific, you know, coming. So um, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to that. But you know, before I get ahead of myself, you know, I wanted to say that um, this present book contains three parts, alongside the introduction and the conclusion section. And it's very nicely divided into um, in, uh, so, but also each part encompasses two chapters, except part two that houses three chapters. And then together they provide an examination of the interconnectedness of poison and medicine, as you, as you mentioned, and their close historical development in Chinese traditional medicine and therapy. And I think this is the key, right? So the close historical development that we, we get to, to learn more about. And here I'll use um, a quote from from your book um, because I couldn't find better words (laughs) saying that, um, the book enhances our understanding of the traditional values of poisons in Asia and unpacks the rich culture of drugs in medieval China, um, as it highlights the intricate connection between the body and natural elements and that absolutely influences the formation of knowledge largely defined, right? So going back to epistemology and the way we perceive the world. And I wanted to invite you to tell us a bit more about the sources you relied on on doing this research and how is the tension between physical suffering, spiritual elevation, and the use of medicine, of course, broadly defined, um, informing the medical epistemology in medieval China?
0: Yeah, yeah. This is really interesting, uh, important question. Um, and as a, a historian, uh, and historian of science and medicine, uh, uh, surely the sources matter quite a lot, right? We Historian use... Sources, sources, a core of uh, any historical inquiry, and particularly for you know uh, uh, a study on you know medieval China a long time ago, uh, we do have limited resources, uh, simply because of the distance of time. So I tried my best to uh, use a variety of uh, sources available to us, either you know directly from the period of study or transmitted by later, you know, uh, editorial effort, you know, and uh, become available to us now. Um, so since this is primarily a book on the history of medicine and pharmacy, and surely the medical sources uh, constitute, uh, constitute a major part of the materials I employed for my study. Uh, and even within this, this large genre of medical texts, there are subgenres, for example, we have the pharmacological writing, uh, uh, which I use the word "Materia medica uh, to refer to this genre of writing about drugs oftentimes is organized by by, by by drugs and each of which uh, with explanation of its name its place its you know preparation method um, properties and above all medical uses right so this is a material medica test um, I uh, examined in detail I also Uh, Explored formula books, uh, which is a different subgenre in the medical text, which involves a collection of oftentimes a large collection of uh, formulas, medical formulas, uh, organized by type of diseases uh, these uh, prescriptions treat. Um, So, and there I I already detect something uh, interesting that that between these two subgenres of medical sources there are some interesting differences in terms of the epistemological orientations. That the material text texts often followed a commentary tradition, starting from the Han period. And later compilers of this text basically copied the previous text and adding the commentary to the end of each of the drug entry and making the text larger and larger. And also they added more new drugs. So... In terms of the number of drugs, in terms of the, you know, the uh, the information for each drug, it get expanded over time, but they all always preserve uh, the writing of the drugs in the preceding texts, right? So this is the so called commentary tradition. Um, but the formula writings, on the other hand, uh, they it doesn't follow such a sequence of writing. There's no. Such commentary tradition, they basically just collect, you know, formulas from all kinds of materials in a preceding author, sometimes based on the author of the book himself, right? So, and it's more uh, uh, miscellaneous and eclectic, uh, more open-ended, and perhaps with a more, you know, practical orientation in it. So that's just example of how two different kind of medical texts. Medical text uh, reviews different kinds of epistemological orientations uh, other sources beyond the medical text are used including uh dynamic dynamic histories including legal documents because we find interesting legal documents documents showing the regulation of medicines including poisons during the period I study um, also uh um Taoist scriptures, uh, particularly the last content chapter, chapter which uh, we we'll talk more later about Taoist alchemy that I use uh, the alchemical texts primarily preserved in the Taoist canon there. So these are all what I call transmitted texts, which means that uh, these texts, uh, they are not directly produced from the period I study, which is roughly from the 200 to 800 after the common era. Um, they were produced by later compilers, authors from the Song time on, partly due to this commentary tradition. But there's another set of texts uh, which are very important to my study. These are manuscripts. Uh, Manuscripts are the texts directly produced from the period I study, And uh, 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 prominently, the manuscripts from Dunhuang and Turfan um so they overlapped the, the time of these uh, 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 dating of these texts overlapped nicely with the period I study. So the nice thing about these sources, uh, manuscript sources is that uh, they came directly from the period of my study, so without the editorial bias of later authors. right? So that's always the problem for historians, right? So uh, and on, 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 uh, uh, in addition, Uh, because these texts, uh, these manuscripts uh, came from Dunhuang or Turfan. These are in the, you know, Western part of the, you know, Tang Empire. So they reveal something very interesting about the local knowledge, uh, particularly the medical knowledge produced in these uh, regions and the negotiation between that locality uh, with the knowledge produced from the central state. So that's something, you know, uh, it's that uh, I'm keenly interested in as well. So uh, this uh, is uh, basically the description of my sources. Um, I'll also talk briefly about the different knowledge, uh, ca- different kind of knowledge, as you said, right? So uh, the formation of knowledge you know, uh, derived from these various sources. Uh, I already give example of the difference between uh, the Materia Medica and uh, formula books. Uh, also, uh, in terms of the healing, right? So, uh, in China, so uh, I provided two perspectives uh, of understanding healing practice in China. This is uh, in the introduction, right? The, on the one hand, the goal of the healing is to cure illness, right? That's what we generally understand what medicine does for us. But also the second dimension to it is the life enhancement and spiritual elevation, as you, you know, nicely summarized. So that dimension in our modern society is often not considered medical, perhaps it's more religious, you know, but back in the time I study, actually what is considered medical and what is considered religious is often blurred. Right? So it's formed a continuum, right? It's higher pursuit of life enhancement, but it's not, entirely distinct from the first goal of curing disease. And so that's basically, uh, I find, from an epistemological perspective, it's very interesting that it's not a two distinct terrain of the production knowledge. They are entwined. Um, so, um, another uh, example of the production knowledge I have already mentioned, and I can elaborate later more, especially, for example, the spatial distribution of knowledge, the knowledge produced from the center, the state, the government, uh, has a particular type of goal and orientation compared to the knowledge produced from, for example, from Dunhuang and Turfan, oftentimes with the practical concerns uh, contingent upon the local needs. Uh, So that's something it's also quite uh, interesting for me to pursue. Yeah.
1: Right. So in part one entitled uh, Malleable Medicines, um, you know, we, we, we get to know more about um, the word of two uh, or, or poison as it's translated today. Um, but, you know, it's way more than that. So as we, we learn in chapter one, and I have a question about that, but um, I just wanted to mention before, before the question that the two chapters house under this part, right, the paradox of two and transforming poisons, explore the meaning of the word and its materialization in Chinese pharmacology um so you know I was curious to hear more about the different meaning of the word who, um, because I think it's a it's an accretive process right in time it got more and more uh, nuances to it and um, you know I think because it's the core of, of, of the matter it has this this etymological and epistemic history to it um, and you know it it's in chapter one, but I wanted to, to hear more about it and for our listeners as well.
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so, do uh, actually uh, lies at the heart of my inquiry uh, in my book because it is the most important word you know, for the topic of study mon- uh, uh, poisons. In the modern context, do uh, uh, carries a very negative connotation uh, similar to the word poison in English. Okay, so, um but in the period I study uh, do actually uh, carried a wide variety of meanings, sometimes even opposite meanings. Um, so it is a word um, appears, uh, this is according to uh, Constance's Cook uh, study. Uh, it does appear in Oracle Bones um, uh, with a, con- a negative connotation. Uh, it seems that the character refers to a human foot stepping on a snake so this is something bad happened you know being poisoned by a snake so something to be avoided so definitely a ne- negative connotation there but in uh the in some of the pre qin texts for example in the 4th century before common era the, the the famous uh daoist text Laozi or dao de jing it gives to a different connotation of being something nourishing actually referring to uh, the nourishing power of du, uh, or virtue. So that's a very positive connotation of du. So you can see that there are different lines of development uh, in this ancient period of time. And during this Han period of time, I find uh, this different kind of understanding of du coexisted. According to a first century dictionary, for example, uh, du has this core meaning of thickness, which refer to the, you know, thickness of lofty mountains. Uh, so thickness implies, you know, uh, heaviness, abundance, strong, strength, right? So it doesn't carry a obvious negative connotation. It's a more of a neutral word. Of course, there are negative connotations recorded uh, in this dictionary, particularly associated with grass, with herbal, you know, uh, substances. Uh, but I want to uh, just bring to your attention this this almost a paradoxical meaning of do already you know find in the Han period, which is also seen in the medical text, which is my focus. Right? So, for example, in the foundational pharmacological text, Divine Farmer's Classic of Materia Medica, Shen Nong Ben Tao Jing, do appears there as a basic index to categorize drugs into three tiers the lower tier the drug tier many of them have possessing do uh, which are used to cure illnesses drugs in the middle tier some of them possess do others do not they were used to maintain the good health of the body strengthen the body and then drugs in the upper tier most of them do not possess do uh, are used to uh, prolong life and enhance you know the vitality of the life you know, as I mentioned before, so you can see that, you know, do in this context, is not something, you know, like poison or even toxic. And I think do carry a strong sense of potency. That's the word I often used. It also appeared in the title of my book, Potent Medicines. The potency, right? On the one hand, the potent matters can be very dangerous to harm a human body. But on the other hand, they can be very useful, effective medicines to cure intractable diseases. And doctors in China from the Han period on recognized this duality of the du So instead of entirely abandoning or ignoring these powerful substances in total, they actually developed a variety of techniques, methods, and strategies to try to transform these powerful and potent substances, du possessing substances, right, into something useful for healing purposes. So this is something it's is 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 very uh, important for me to share with with my audience, and I want to say a little bit more about uh, this concept of do in a comparative perspective, uh, because there is a similar concept called pharmakon, which can be traced back to the Greek uh, pharmacy uh, around the same time, you know, as you know the the, the do, you know, so in ancient times. So pharmakon, which is the original Greek word for the English word pharmacology, pharmacy today. But back then, right, so the pharmacon carried also a paradoxical meaning of both something to heal or something to harm. And something to harm, actually, that aspect disappeared in our modern words of pharmacology and pharmacy, but it was there. So it's very similar to do in that regard. But what I find interesting, this is also based on other scholars' work, like uh, history of medicine, Frederick Gibbs' work, is that, you know, so in the Western context, particularly in European context, the pharmacon, the idea of pharmacon, you know, gradually disappeared in the medieval period in the sense that there is a group of, in a sense, ontological distinct substances called poisons separated from the pharmacy. They become absolute poisons in a sense, right? No medical values. Uh, uh, considered to be there for these substances and this separation became more pronounced from the 13th century on due to the the black death so this separation became the marker or precursor in a sense to the rise of the modern toxicology which is different from pharmacology in the western tradition but what I find interesting here is that in imperial China uh, I didn't see this Clear separation between poisons and medicines, between toxicology and pharmacology. Poisons were always an integral part of medicines in Chinese pharmacy, and it remained to be frequently used uh, throughout the Imperial China. So that's something I find quite interesting from a, pers- a comparative perspective.
1: Yeah, I found it fascinating, too. And, you know, in the end, it was just a, a matter of dosage and a matter of manipulating the 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 plants or the, the combination of elements uh, that will render a, a drug, medicine, um, to, you know, heal or to enhance life or to enhance certain uh, certain features. And I found that extremely interesting because of the duality that we're, we're taught right in school and even in language in english right we have the the dualism between poison and uh medicine right that is is supposed to 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 heal only um and of course as as we see in the book that's not necessarily true all the time that duality has the history that you you mentioned but uh and also you know it's not uh the whole story and the the transformation right transforming the poison uh it's uh, poisons is the actual title of chapter two um and we, we get to know more about it uh because it takes into consideration and analyzes different pharmaceutical techniques to transform the poison into medicine and alongside these practices we notice a diversification of people's roles in participating in or you know annotating manipulating distributing the knowledge but also the products, right, and the actual uh, medicine and also elixirs, uh, you know, for for enhancing life. So what is the relationship between nature and technology here? And who is managing, you know, combining, processing, distributing, you know, all the network, right?
0: Right, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So so there's two dimensions uh, uh, in, in chapter two of the book. One dimension is about techniques, as you rightly pointed out, you know, a, a, a variety of techniques uh, were deployed by uh, physicians in China uh, to transform poisons into medicines. Uh, this includes, as you just said, a dosage control um, and also includes, for example, combining a, a potent substance, a due-possessing substance with something not possessing do to alleviate uh, uh, the, the potency of the drug but still preserve its uh, uh, efficacy. Uh, and also the, uh, uh, another group of techniques uh, is called drug processing. Okay. And so this involves soaking, uh, firing, uh, cutting, you know etc, etc. Again, the goal is to you know control its you know, potency but still make it effective. So uh, these variety of techniques I examine in detail in chapter two, I use a particular example of aconite uh, called Fuzi in Chinese. Uh, mm-hmm. This is one of the most frequently prescribed medicines uh, in traditional Chinese pharmacy. It was highly poisonous. You know, it, uh, in Chinese text, it's called possessing great Du, right? So a very dangerous drug uh, to maneuver, actually. So, but doctors from the Han period on actually use this drug very frequently, and use the variety of techniques I just mentioned: dosage control, drug combination, drug processing, to uh, to 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 control its potency and make a useful medicine. And that's partly why this medicine became continued to be used in the following centuries and millennium. Um, so uh, that's one aspect, right? So in terms of the uh, technology, and here my point is that when we think about Chinese medicine, uh, we can't really just uh, say, "Oh, this is." Natural stuff, you know, um, sometimes it's a misconception of transmedicine today, right? It's natural versus artificial manufactured in the laboratory. I mean, it's true it's not manufactured in the laboratory. It's the original source of transmedicine is from nature, but uh, oftentimes we cannot consume that original source directly. There's always a human mediation through the technology of these variety of methods I just mentioned. So I just opened up, want to open up a space for us to think about the relationship between human actors and the nature as mediated by technology. Right? So that's one aspect. And the second aspect of, of, of this chapter is about human actors, right? Who are involved in collecting, preparing, prescribing these uh, medicines. And I do find an interesting change from the Han period to the a uh, period of era division uh, from the third to uh, the sixth century, particularly from in the fifth and sixth century, something uh, interesting happened. That is, you know, in the Han period, uh, the people who collected medicines uh, and prescribed medicines, oftentimes um, uh, they were purchased at the, at the same type of people. Right? These people often uh, we cannot say they are the professional doctors by any means because they often possess different kind of techniques, uh, esoteric arts. Uh, in Chinese, there's a word called fang shi, referring to this group of people, right? They possess the knowledge of drug, but also like divination, like you know, sexual practices, uh, like alchemy, right? So, and, and they live oftentimes in a hermit style, uh, away from politics, live in remote mountains. They collect medicines, they sell medicines, it's bright medicines, often with this kind of you know, magic aurora in their persona. Right? So that is the portrait of medical workers at a time in the Han. But in the 5th and 6th century, I find that there is increasing separation and differentiation of different kinds of labor uh, from the collecting to the preparation to the prescribing of medicines. So this is primarily portrayed by the physicians at the time. They find that this is actually their concern that some of these people, in their eyes, were not so capable. They track the medicine from the wrong places, and the market men, right? So they uh, sometimes they sell medicines out of the not out of the concern of patients, but for profit. They use like sell you know uh, earth as medicines for profit. This raised a concern for the physicians at the time, and they tried to want to reestablish the proper knowledge of pharmaceutical knowledge, right? So, preparing drugs and prescribing drugs, and clarify and rectify the mistakes circulated in the society. And that's the reason that they produced uh, some important uh, medical, pharmacological, and pharmaceutical texts at the time, primarily based on a personal effort to try to uh, make the situation better, right? To clarify this confusion uh, in society. And in the fifth and sixth century, this is primarily done by the capable and concerned physicians. Um, but in the following centuries, from seventh to eighth centuries, we find state played a more important role in uh, standardizing pharmaco- pharmacological knowledge. Uh, and, and so that, 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 that is another shift you know, uh, in the book, in the following chapters, I I talk about, yeah,
1: right, yeah, I I was just thinking, you know, about the diversity that must have existed at the time when, uh, you know, concerned physicians, right, were were trying to, um, to correct or, or, you know, trying to, to even spread, right, the knowledge that they saw, saw fit in that, that particular moment, and um, you know, almost like household names in a way, right? I think you mentioned an example, right, of, of a particular physician that uh, you know had a few generations before him, and you know, he uh, he also uh, dedicated his life to to writing down all the recipes, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, and this is certainly on the, on the one on one had to try to correct the situation at the time uh, to establish uh, authoritative knowledge it's also part of their way to establish their own medical authority right so listen to me if this is the correct knowledge from this famous tradition a physician from a generations of practice so that aspect uh, in terms of the production of authority and knowledge i think it's also quite uh, important yeah
1: absolutely yeah and you know as as you you said we we do get to um to the next period when uh, the state intervenes and the state takes a position uh, towards the distri- manufacturing and the distribution of, uh, of, of, of the medicine and uh, knowledge uh, associated with it. And uh, part two, I think, works with, with this particular um, aspect. Uh, and it's entitled Knowledge, Authority, and Practice, and examines the changing landscape of Chinese pharmacy in the Sui and early Tang dynasties, inspecting the heightened concern about poisoning and witchcraft specifically, right, in political circles, and uh, the state patronage of producing and promulgating pharmaceutical knowledge and physician's keen interest in applying such knowledge in practice, as you say on page 15. So, you know, going into amazing details, chapters three, the first in this part, Fighting Poison with Poison, discusses the link between etiology and therapy. Specifically, uh, we we see here demonic infestation. And I thought, that's amazing. Great. Okay. <laughs> uh, right. And uh, there's also the, the goo, poisoning, um, as Uh, as well as notions of contagion and epidemics. And again, I thought, oh my God, yes, okay, contagion, yes, (laughs) let's talk about this, right? So, um, you know, my question here is more like, how do these infestations happen and how do they manifest and what are some of the prescribed steps towards healing? Um, And then also, you know, because we're talking about witchcraft in political circles, um, what are the political ties between poisons and the imperial court apparent in in that period?
0: Right, yeah, sure. That chapter I really enjoy writing because there's uh, some colorful stories and the terms uh, there on uh, the demons and witchcraft, and so, um, so I I start that chapter with uh, a question. Uh, I ask myself oftentimes I was asked by other people, right? So the question is why, why did people at the time use poison to cure, uh, disease, right? So. And actually there's a term, an indigenous term in Chinese called yidu uh, gongdu, literally means use poison to attack poison, which sort of reveals the underlying rationale of the, why poison were used in the past. And so this chapter is really about uh, in depth study of that, the historical roots of that, that term, using poison to attack poison. And so uh, as you mentioned that you know there's two kind of pathological entities I am uh, investigating here in this chapter one is called uh demonic infestations and the other is uh, is school poison so demonic infestation you can see is more connected to demonic you know uh, possession dem- demonic attack right it's associated with demons so demonology has a very very uh, deep history in China back in the ancient times so um, but my uh focus here is is connection to the way of uh, basic etymology uh, et- etiology sorry etiology the cause of illness how demon was imagined uh, in in the past as something dangerous to the body and that you know so from the Han, actually pre-Han period, you see that the you know, demon often consider a dangerous uh, pathological entities that attack person, sometimes randomly, okay, so, and cause serious uh, uh, severe diseases. And then after Han period, uh, perhaps due to the Taoist influence, um, there is a connection between demonic possession and the morality of the individual if a person doesn't do good things, right? So there is a thing, and so that person is more prone to demonic attack. And later medical writers, for example, from the sixth, seventh century on, they started to tie this kind of demonic imagination to the constitution of individual body. So besides the moral principle here, there is the idea of if a body is depleted, it's empty, it's shu, right, in Chinese term, then that body is more prone to demonic attack. So uh, these are various uh, 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 ways of thinking about demons in its connection to disease. And I also want to say that uh, um, the demonic infestation here, the infestation, this word is interesting. Uh, In Chinese, this is called Zhu. Uh, Sometimes it's it's translated as as infusion. So the idea is that once a person, is struck by the demon and the person died, uh, there is a poisonous qi emanate, emanated from the body of the person and that can attack other person and body. Uh, so other, other people will, will be affected and became the victim of such attack. So certainly there is a dimensional con- contagion here um, So associated with the demonic um, uh, infestation. So physicians at the time uh, realized this the severeness of the disease, and they developed a variety of remedies, uh, sometimes ritual remedies, incantations, using the talismans, but oftentimes they also use poisons to counter these powerful uh, entities, either attacking the body from outside or you know uh, forming something uh, pathological from inside the body, so they try to use powerful drugs. So that's something uh, I find it's uh, a very interesting way of thinking about this term using poison to counter poison. Uh, so the second aspect of uh, of um, the thinking about using poison, to attack poison is, as mentioned, the gu poison. And this is related, but also distinct from the demonic manifesta- uh, uh, infestation, uh, because the gu poison uh, involved manipulation of poisons, in this case, the manipulation of uh, poisonous uh, vermin like snakes and worms and scorpions. Um, so, uh, the idea based on uh, early 7th century medical text, is that you put a bunch of poisonous creatures in a vessel and allow them to devour each other freely, and eventually, there's one single creature left there accumulating all the poison from others and that one is called gu and once that one is you know put into the food and drink and it can harm the person right so and that's the idea of gu. we can see that the similarity between this kind of practice to witchcraft and and it is true that oftentimes this kind of practice was uh a thought to be associated with women with shamanism but one thing I want to point out is that the gu poison is, is surely is, very, is considered very dangerous. Uh, it's, all, it's always associated with an evil mind, a ill-natured person, a manufacturer of gu behind. Right? So the rationale there is that for many people at the time, particularly for the political leaders, they consider that to treat gu, the best way is to eradicate the people, the person who produced Right. That's the root. That, that's the root of such a poison. So as a result of uh, the government, uh, especially the Tang Sui, and the Tang government in the in the seventh and eighth century, they implemented stringent policies to uh, punish those they consider are the poisoners and banish them to the margin of the empire, sometimes with execution. So, and this continued in the following century. You can see the Gu partitioners that uh, accused the Gu partitioners. Uh, they were pushed to the peripheral and later time they were also associated with the minority people, uh, such as the Miao people. And, and, and so that is an interesting process. I, I find it's interesting connecting to, uh, for example, the witchcraft uh, the persecution in, uh, in, in Europe and in America. So finally, coming back to uh, putting those two things together, uh, my ultimate point here is that to understand uh, the term yidugungdu, use poison to attack poison, we need to think about not just medicine, but also politics, the so-called body politic, because I find something interesting here as as a a parallel. Uh, Just like the physicians prescribed powerful medicines like poisons, to eliminate this, you know, dangerous entities, be it demons, be it vermin, out of a physical body. The political government, the state, also utilized or implemented strong, stringent policies to eliminate the practitioners uh, of the poison out of its political body. Right? So this is a sort of a parallel processes. I find it interesting, and so that's basically how I uh, interpret this word from a uh, uh, etiological and political uh, angle. Yeah,
1: this is fascinating, and you know, I'm thinking here that you know the 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 importance put on the mind and controlling the mind, controlling certain certain um, groups or people, right? under the, the umbrella of witchcraft or, you know, poisoning um, has, has started to take quite a bit of, of space in the politics of the time um, and um, how medicine and, you know, the practice itself uh, of, of drug creation is sometimes looped into, <laughs> into uh, these things. So, um, yeah, I, I found that very, uh, very interesting and also, you know, a space where we can explore more As well as, uh, of course, Chapter 4, Medicines and Circulation, that uh, introduces us both to Tang Dynasty's effort to centralize medical knowledge. So it continues right from the earlier part, uh, and then uh, especially when it came to powerful medicine, as well as to the ways in which the knowledge circulated across the land and suffered rapid transformations due to regional, uh, regional conditions. Um, and here, the chapter outlines the institutions, uh, and I, I was very happy to, to see all the names, right? Uh, for example, the, yeah, the Imperial Medical Office, the Palace Drug Service, uh, you know, inherited from the Sui Dynasty, and the Pharmacy in the Secretariat of the heir Apparent. I thought that's a wonderful name. And, um, you know, as well with the, uh, so the, 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 the office in charge with the acquisition of uh, ingredients via the tributary system. And I wanted to ask you to tell us more about these institutions, you know, the documents they oversaw and the local adaptation of official knowledge uh, on on poisons.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, a a chapter more on the uh, institutional uh, history and continuation of exploration of the important role state played in uh, generating and uh, uh, propagating medical knowledge. So... And uh, starting from the institution, uh, these, these names uh, you just uh, described, uh, this is actually the medical uh, institutions established in the uh, central government uh, of Sui and Tang. Actually, there are some kind of precursor institutions even before that. Uh, so there is a continuity of this over a long period of time. But I think suffice to say that Tang period, especially the early period of Tang in the 7th and uh, uh, 8th century, uh, the government significantly significantly expanded uh, these institutions, including the Cure Medical Office, uh, that is uh, an office uh, serving for uh, cure, uh, providing medical service for uh, governmental officials, right? This office includes more than 300 personnel, uh, specializing in, in internal medicine, acupuncture, uh, Therapeutic exercise and interesting, you know, incantation as ritual healing also is in that uh, office, um, and uh, the the palace drug office, the palace drug service. Um, actually, that's a different institution for uh, providing the medical service for the imperial house, right? So that's for you know the imperial family, and lastly, the pharmacy in the Secretariat of Hair Hair uh, Apparent. That's uh, a, a smaller, a smaller uh, institution for, mm-hmm. uh, providing medical service for the crown prince.? right? This is primarily for you know the the, the top echelon of the society uh, where we have more evidence and the, the documents. Uh, right. And surely, you know so this kind of medical uh, preparation, it's a very serious matter because you can prepare a medicine for Emperor. Uh, you've got to be a bit careful right so because yes. you know uh, <laughs> yeah. you know any mishandling and you know misuse misprescription will be you know will, will will lead to you know severe punishment and so the emperor was you know was also concerned because you know whether it's deliberate or inadvertent uh, misuse of medicines could harm the life so there is a very stringent uh system of the regulation of medicines, including poisons, include uh, particularly the drug tasting system, that for any medicines before that medicine enters the mouth of the emperor, it was subject to at least three rounds of tasting by the officials who prepared the medicine and even by the crown prince. So uh, that is kind of a control system to try to guarantee the safe use of Medicine at the time and certain poisons, uh, especially the highly you know, powerful poisons, um, uh, like uh, one, one, one poison herb called Jianisin, um, 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 which is uh, called Gowen in, in Chinese, It's highly poisonous and was uh, prohibited by the court. To be used by commoners. I mean, it could be still used by the pay book of physicians, by employed by the court, but not to be used by the commoners because it's just too powerful. Uh, in in case it was misused, in case it was falling into the wrong hand for murder, right? So, so that is one regulation mechanism. So another one I spend uh, quite a lot of time uh, is uh, in in that chapter is about uh, the production of. Standardized materia medica text, and here I focus on uh, important text produced in the middle of the seventh century called Newly Revised Materia Medica, Xinxiu uh, Bencao, which is the first state-sponsored pharmacological writing uh, in Chinese history, and so and that text basically state uh, produ- uh, sponsored a, a, a nationwide survey of all the substances, medicine substances. And try to rectify the previous mistakes by, you know, the individual physicians. Right, those previous works were pretty much done by the individual physicians, and they consider they are at a better position of collecting medical knowledge through this kind of, you know, empire-wide uh, effort. So it's a very significant text, including 850 drugs, and, and many of them are do possessing all the poisons, uh, and providing the detailed information about the morphology. And the medical uses uh, uses of, of of these drugs. So this is something interesting because there's definitely an effort state to you know use such a text, a standardized text, to regulate medical practice. But on the other hand, equally if not more more important, is the state try to use this kind of project to elevate its own ruling. Right, elevate its own gesture of, uh, you know, a, as a powerful, a capable state providing medical service to its people. And it's interesting that I encountered um, a, a Dunhuang manuscript with uh, a preface to this uh, to this uh, book, which preserved the Tang features of the manuscript. It's basically, uh, there's one section which was eliminated by the Song text and right, the later editions it celebrates the state's effort of recalibrating everything under the heaven, including medicines, as a way to manifest the majestic, majesty of the empire, right? So that aspect, I think, is also quite important, using medicine as a way to achieve effective ruling, right, governance by the state. And the last thing I want to say is that, sorry, uh, is that, you know, so, once this knowledge was produced at the center of the uh, state, it got quickly spread to uh, the rest of the empire. Um, and this text was reproduced in local regions. We find at least four different copies of this manuscript in Dunhuang. But one copy I examined in detail reveals something interesting regarding the local adaptation of the state knowledge, that this manuscript had a very interesting Form is it's like a pamphlet. It's called Posty manuscript. A a, a a a little form. It's not a, a regular scroll, uh, so suggesting it can be easily carried, mm-hmm. and also the the text was dramatically re, reordered and truncated compared to the state sponsor, sponsored text, and oftentimes placing the most available and useful medicines at the front with more elaboration. But other less useful medicines were either truncated or drastically reduced, you know, in terms of the description. So it's very interesting to see that local actors, in this case, probably local monks in the Dunhuang, they readily uh, transformed the state-sponsored uh, medical text into their own kind of adaptation according to their needs, according to uh, the availability of the ingredients in local regions so that's something i also find quite uh, quite revealing by studying just the manuscript culture in doing
1: absolutely and then also the the way right from the way was truncated um the the you know almost the thinking right behind that type of, of truncation and you know how how knowledge was um was accumulated in that document per se and you know what it kept what it didn't keep and how it, it reorganized for the use of a specific monk or maybe a group, right, of, of monks. So, yeah, I, I also thought of that as a potential, you know, topic of further discussions, right, of, of this local adaptation. Um, and I think we, we get to, to practice, right, to the medicines and, and practice to chapter five. Um, and uh, here, you know, we, we, although we do have a very straightforward and, and focused example, uh, I thought it goes really it's a, it's a very good transition from, the, the, from chapter four, where we talk about all this distribution and uh, you know standardization of knowledge, but then we get to, to the practice of it. And here the figure of Sun, uh, Sun Sumia and his formula books is, is quite central. So um, you know I was wondering how can we define the genre of such books and their essential role in Chinese pharmacology and medicine? And I was curious about Sun Sumiao's take on theory and practice, um, you know, because I, I think he's pretty pretty special and important at the same yeah, time. right? Yeah.
0: So <laughs> thank you for that question. I hope you know uh, my discussion of Sun Simiao will make him uh, a, a little a bit more uh, well known <laughs> to the people outside my field. It's it is a very important figure in the history of Chinese medicine, but oftentimes time is not so much known outside this field. So um, I want to start with something more general, because uh, in terms of the genre, you just mentioned this particular medical genre called former books, uh, feng shu in Chinese. Um, as I uh, mentioned earlier in our conversation, that you know it reveals a particular uh, epistemic, uh, epistemic orientation. I, this is, I um, uh, got inspired by uh, uh, historian medicine, Gianna Pomata's work on she used the term epistemic genre to refer to different kinds of medical texts in European context. And in this case of Sun the former books, uh, uh, my understanding is that it reviews this particular practical orientation in com- compared to some more theory-oriented canonical, uh, res- canon-respecting texts uh, of writing medicine. This is more miscellaneous, more um, open in a sense, uh, and that's basically a uh, touch upon the issue you mentioned, the relationship between theory and practice, which is, I think, a very important topic, particularly in the history of science medicine. And surely, you know, Sun Simiao uh, cared about uh, theory. He understood the theory uh, very well uh, in his former books. He usually at the beginning of each section of a particular illness, he talked about uh, the theory a little bit. Uh, starting with the discussion, the word discussion, and citing canonical works like Yellow Emperor's Inner Canon, uh, Divine Farmers Classic, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I find interesting is that quickly he moved to uh, the formulas themselves. And so and this is constitute the bulk of his writings. He's basically just either copied or included based on his own experience, the formulas. He collected over years one after another. And so you can see these uh, formula collections he, he made, he made two in particular, uh, include thousands of formulas in it, right? So Without and those formulas itself, they don't include theoretical discussion. So he, he, he suggests them, but he didn't explain why you treat this, you know, use this for this particular disease. So I find that is quite interesting. And what is even more interesting is that he included Twenty-five uh, medical cases, oftentimes based on his own experience, into uh, one of the formula books, and this is actually the earliest evidence we find from the formula books that integrates medical cases. Right, so uh, with the time, place, observation, diagnosis, and therapeutic therapeutic outcome. So that I I I spend the more uh uh the most of the time in this chapter, focusing on those 25 medical cases, really, that's really telling something about shun se medical practice. And I find that actually, in the theory, didn't play that much a role in those practice. And in one revealing example, he uses this powder, which includes 64 different kinds of herbs, a very complicated you know, formula, and he got it from a monk. A Buddhist monk, so indicating this is something of a foreign, like Indian origin. But he tried, it and he finds miraculously efficacious. That's in his own words. And so, and he mused upon this and giving something, uh, uh, giving us something very interesting. He says, you know, this is something very effective, but I couldn't understand how it works. And even sages here, meaning you know all the sages in ancient China. They don't understand what what, 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 how it works, but it works. So I, I, I would readily, happily incorporate that farmer into my writing. So this is something I find quite interesting, that he part, prioritized the practical experience, oftentimes based on his own experience, over something is doctrinal, canonical, theoretical. And that opened up a space for us to think about the empirical knowledge produced by uh, physicians like Sun Simiao during the seventh and eighth century. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's. Um, I was very, very well, impressed. Is not the right word, but I was happy in a in a way to see that he was so so open to um, you know foregoing the the canonical type of of uh, orientation and just try it and appreciate the the results in a way. So um, yeah, I was I was very uh, captivated by this chapter and uh, the, and Sun, Sun Yao's figure. So I uh, I absolutely hope his uh, his name will be you know more more prevalent in, in articles <laughs> or <even> you <Really>? know books. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know we from 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 this we, we get to enhancing the body. So that's part three in the book. And here we see the role poison plays in life enhancement and specifically when uh when uh, poisons illuminate the mind and prolong life transform the body and comfort immortality um, in the field of alchemy um, and here chapter six alluring a uh, stimulant focuses our attention on the five stone powder alternatively called the great power or uh, powder sorry the yeah. great powder or the cold uh food powder and uh, starts with a very dramatic story of a southern sea general who was troubled uh, by, by by this drug. So, what is the story regard, regarding this powerful drug? We learn from the medical discussions in medieval China, and what was the appeal about it, um, and you know the debates, right, that that surround it.
0: Yeah. So uh, this is also uh, in, in a sense a colorful cha- chapter on the, the on the history of. Five Stone Powder, or alternative called Cold Food Powder. Uh, perhaps I can quickly summarize this story uh, at the beginning of the chapter, so I mean, for those of them, those of you who haven't read the book, you know, so you can get a sense of the the power of the powder here. So this is a story about a fifth century general from Southern Qi, as he mentioned, Feng Bo Yu. So he uh, he ingested this, this this great medicine, Five Stone Powder, and he got sick. And so a physician called Xu Sibu came over and he diagnosed him and said, you suffered from something called dormant heat, which means you have heat inside the body, is dormant. Uh, you need to be released. And you need to be released by the cold water. So waited until the winter time. And on a cold day, he asked two people hold the general on a stone and and, and his, his, his body is naked. And so and then they asked people. To pour a huge amount of cold water onto his body. It's a very brutal treatment. Um, and to the degree that, that the general lost consciousness. And despite his family's plea, in not doing that anymore, the doctor continued to ask people to pour cold water onto uh, the general's seemingly lifeless body. But eventually uh, the general came back to life and actually asking for more water. To drink, and eventually, uh, the warm tea emanating from the body, and he was cured. Not just cured; his body became strong uh, and and uh, uh, plump. So that is a very dramatic story. Uh, I suppose not many of us will will will, will take this measure to treat no. disease today. It, <laughs> no. you know it is uh, it is, uh, but it says something quite uh, interesting about the drug, firestone powder, and the way to treat it. So, the firestone powder, as the name implies, involves, five five firestone, oftentimes involves more than that, uh, five different kinds of minerals, uh, sometimes with herbs as well. Uh, The the formula varies, you know, from book to book. Uh, It does, it is a, it is a poison because uh, it contains arsenic, you know, or arsenic compound. It's very powerful. It's released a lot of heat Inside the body, so it is one of the most popular drugs uh, during the era of division and and the time period. So particularly uh, favored by scholars uh, because uh, the drug promised not to not just cure disease and strengthen the body, but also illuminate the mind. There is a psychedelic dimension to it as well. So people felt, you know, literati at the time felt this is a powerful drug to enhance, for example, their literary performance. So uh, tremendously popular at the time, but you can see this is a very dangerous drug. I mean, it's a poison. Uh, so a lot of people get injured and even they died from uh, the ingestion of this drug. But what I find interesting and particularly revealing is that you know there's surely a lot of debate at the time. But the center of the debate is not really about whether this drug should be banned altogether, right? So that's not the center. The center is how to use this drug properly, the methods, the proper methods of using the drug. And here, the key thing is that this drug can release a lot of heat. So once a patient takes this drug, that's not at the end of therapy. Actually, that is the start of therapy. The patient has the responsibility to take a variety of measures to release the heat out of the body. And that process is the healing process. So that's involved, for example, eating cold food. That's why it's called cold food powder. Mm-hmm. Taking cold baths. Work with you know, not many, not much clothes on to release the heat. right? So all these measures matter. And different people take different methods. And there's, according to physicians at the time, the correct methods or the wrong methods and so the latter leading to tragic uh, consequences. So that's one dimension I find very interesting. The second dimension is that physicians, including Sun Simiao, he also, he didn't say this drug should be absolutely banned, but he said this drug should be only used for incurable diseases, or very hard to treat diseases, the last resort to treat emergencies not for just regularly taking it for life enhancement. He disagreed with many people before him. So that's another dimension I think is important, not just the way of using this drug, but also the end, the goal of using this drug also matters. If we we carelessly conflate the goals of curing disease, especially intractable disease with life enhancement, uh, we we may we, we 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 may have trouble, right? So and sometimes you know the consequence could be very very serious. So that is the, the thing I find interesting about this story of the coal, uh, the firestone powder. Yeah.
1: Sure, sure. And you know it seems that um, and I think it's the first time we when we see this. Um, um, it's almost a series of. Um, of measures that you have to take for healing or for um, you know combating one poison with another um, because it's not just ingesting the the powder or ingesting the drug but it's also everything around it and it it you know opens up all sorts of discussions about you know ways of life and understanding a disease but um, I was really fascinated by this idea of how to release the heat and how to uh, help. <laughs> the, the the drug itself, um, in a way, and uh, I think it's a it's a very important moment, right, in the history of medicine to to start thinking about these these practices um, together, right, as as right.
0: part right. of healing. Yeah, in a sense, healing is a processual thing; it's not like a static, just taking a pill, for example, and that's right. it, right? So yeah. it, there's a con- sequence of healing there, and we need to be, in a sense, a little bit more patient. Uh, and, and we are involved uh, with our body to, uh, to be part of that healing process. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think so too. And uh, this appears um, even, even more prominently in Chapter 7, uh, entitled Dying to Live, where we learn more about alchemy and the alchemist's interpretation of, of tu, of poison, and their incorporations in systems of knowledge um, through bodily experiences. Um, and I wanted to to hear a little bit more about Chinese alchemy's origins, developments, but also the elixirs, right? Like what, right. Uh, how do they incorporate, two, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so this chapter actually uh, uh, focuses on the, the the second dimension of the Chinese medicine, besides curing illness. This is more of a life enhancement uh, and transcendence or immortality. Uh, that's really the highest goal, particularly. Uh, among alchemists, right? So, and there is a deep history of alchemy. Uh, I mean, scholars like Nathan Seven, Fabrizio, uh, Fabrizio Pregadio have done a lot of work on the history of uh, alchemy, you know, before it started from the Han period uh, and, uh, and flourished actually during the era division and Tang. And we have both textual evidence and archeological evidence indicating that Alchemy was not just you know, discussed on paper uh, as the intellectual enterprise, but also actually practiced. Um, and probably, I mean, the elixirs, which refers to these uh, alchemical products, uh, were ingested by enthusiastic practitioners and emperors as well. Quite a few emperors died from taking these powerful elixirs uh, and the alchemic alchemical ingredients involved um, not surprisingly, powerful substances like you know, arsenic, mercury compound, cinnabar, right, it's mercury compound, sulfur, and lead. So quite potent in a sense. So, but the puzzle I'm trying to tackle is in this chapter is that you know alchemy had a long history, you know, pretty much throughout the first millennium of common Europe. And people at the time they they noticed the powerful effects of these elixirs on their body. And they record it carefully. So why this practice lasted for such a long time, despite you know, the alarming potency of these substances. And that's that my, my, my angle to address this question is from the perspective of, of what number one, the understanding of do uh, is not something, you know, absolutely bad and toxic actually. It has a strong sense of potency in this context, not just to cure illness, but also to elevate the body to a higher state of being to achieve transcendence. So the potency carries that uh, value as well. And the second dimension is from the perspective of the bodily experiences. So this is a very intimate practice of ingesting uh, the exerts which induce oftentimes violent, traumatic, Uh, body sensations, including pains, including vomiting, including, like, you know, dizziness. So for us, right, to our modern eyes, these are pathological symptoms, and we need to treat it, right? This is side effects. We have to eliminate it as quickly as possible. Surely at the time, certain people, certain alchemists, they would say, oh, this, let's do something, Uh, let's tame, you know, the power of the elixirs to try to make it more safe. But other people offer different interpretations. They say, as long as these, uh, signs, uh, of the body, they don't last for a long time, let like, do their work of purifying the body, eliminating the illness. That is a necessary step to the ultimate a step of transcendence. Now, they even cited a famous quote from ancient time. That is, if a drug does not uh, cause dizziness, it cannot cure severe illness. Right, this kind of rationale that, you know, the powerful sensations is a marker rather than uh, a a worrying sign of uh, uh, of, of the disease. It's quite revealing. And ultimately, this is a lesson we learn from uh, Chinese alchemy, that, you know, the importance of the body in the evaluation of medicines. And in our modern context, we often use side effects to refer to the adverse sensations induced by the drug. But here, I would like to open up a space to historicize that concept, to think about various interpretations in the past that, 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 that offered, you know, the different understandings of the medicines, particular powerful medicines, uh, at a time.
1: Yeah, and I think it's an, a very important conversation to have, um, especially when we're we're thinking right about these uh, side. Well, if we call them side effects, right? Because um, it's uh, you know in in the present times is such a. Undesirable, right? Uh, thing to right. have, and uh, you know, there are medicine for si- side effects of other medicine, and you know, there's this this whole um, almost uh, battle, right, against uh, side effects. And of course, they are unpleasant most of the time, but it's a it's a different type of understanding that we see here, specifically in this chapter, um, and the the recording of of bodily experiences that uh, was also important, right, in the um, evolution of of elixirs so you know I right. thought it's a it's a good uh, good way to to actually address a topic that um, it's mostly you know uh, set aside um, right
0: yeah it's also remind me for example our experience of uh, for example vaccination today yeah. right it does have some effects there whether it's a side effect whether it's a therapeutic effect. I right? so it's 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 interesting right to think about that
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, um, you know, I think um, as, as we, we get towards the conclusion, um, I wanted to, to ask more about uh, a lesson, uh, as you called it, that I thought traverses the, the book as a red continuous line, and, and it's summarized as follows uh, on page 175, that the lesson is, uh, is the same. No essential, absolute, or unchanging core exists that determinately characterizes a medicine, it effects in practice as always are always relational mm-hmm. contingent on technological interventions socio-political conditions and bodily experiences and of quote. so how does this change our understanding of drugs and poisons from the past to the present
0: yeah, um, yeah. so uh great question and that's uh, something you know it's always in my mind uh when i'm writing this book right it's a his- history book you know it's very long time ago, a distant history. Um, but I also want to make it relevant to today's, either in Chinese medicine or medicine in general. So, And it is, uh, on the one hand, from a historical perspective, right? So it is a uh, rather ignored history uh, in China, you know, Chinese medicine, you know, the use of the abundant use of uh, poisons and, 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 you know, and understanding and practice of it uh, from you know, in, in the first millennium of the common era. So that, I think, is a very important tradition um, to review. Um, and that tradition, actually, I'm coming back to the, the, the what I said earlier in our conversation that actually privatized the misconceived economy between Chinese and Western medicine. Right? So actually, you know, Chinese medicine just used a lot of poisons as as Western medicine, it's not about the material essence. It's about the way we use it. The body sensation induces. Right. So the social conditions and cultural conditions. So these all matters, the so-called the context, right? So and that is a historical lesson. And I think that lesson can be uh can be relevant to um, the practice of Chinese medicine and Western medicine today, you know, we know that certain powerful substances are still being used uh, in, in in China and in, in Western medicine, like you know, arsenic uh, compound. Uh, this is done by uh, the team of Zhang Qingdong that you know uh, it, it turned out to be uh, arsenic uh, trioxide, actually, in particular. Uh, has been proved to be a very effective drug to treat uh, leukemia. And we also have the evidence of ther- uh, 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 the um, chemotherapy, right? So using powerful things to eliminate illness. So that's the, the positive side of poisons, but also it is a double-edged sword that you know misuse of poison could lead to devastating consequences uh, or misuse of medicines in general, right? We have the you know, the the ongoing, you know, the pandemic, uh, not this pandemic, the pandemic of the uh, opiate crisis, actually. Right? So that's basically the overdose of a illicit drug. My colleague, David Herzberg, have done quite a lot of work on this, right? So really the boundary between the poison and medicine was not that clear cut when we think about these issues. It's really about you know, when we think about medicines today, we often think about in a sense of active ingredient. But I think that kind of concept, we need to go beyond that to think about any medicine not have this kind of concrete and stable uh, essential core. We have to think about it in a relational term, right? Relationship with the technology of its transformation, relationship with the body, a particular body of human being, a relationship to a particular society and culture. That is what truly matters uh, and make medicine meaningful to each of us in our society.
1: Right, and um, I, I totally agree with it, and I also think there's some sort of uh, relationship, right, that needs to be rekindled uh, between, uh, you know, individuals, culture, and medicine. Um, that is, uh, it seems, you know, from your book that it was a way more... Um, like a closer and more personal relationship that people had with what they took, right? Whether it was a drug or it was, um, you know, an, well, something to heal a disease or to enhance um, life. Um, because, you know, from, from my perspective today, medicine is just something that has to come in, cure, and then, you know, then we, we just don't don't talk about it anymore. Um, so I think it's, it's such a, a plurivalent, Conversation that that needs to to happen there, um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, I don't uh, don't want to take more of your time. So I was just wondering whether you could tell us more about your current project.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, um, extending from uh, this this project of poisons, uh, you, you, as you know, you know, oftentimes you know you have some directions of this project that you know. Uh, you don't have the time and space to put into a book. You have to cut it off. And so, a couple of things I, I want to explore uh, in the future. One is this, uh, this comparison between Du and the Farmer Kong. I find it's quite interesting that you know, to, to, to perform a, a deeper analysis of the similarities and differences between these two. In both medical realm and in cultural explanations for this divergence of the pharmaceutical practice uh, in the two traditions, so as I'm always keenly interested in comparative studies. Uh, Another thing is that um, it's more of uh, 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 within Chinese history. You know, do actually became has become a pretty negative term today, but in history, as uh, I have talked about, right, it has very diverse meanings and paradoxical meanings. So my question is, when did this change happen, right? So this is probably happened beyond the period I study, probably in the late, uh, late imperial China, 16th, 17th century. There is a shifting meaning of uh, the word do from more neutral to more negative, whether this is due to the internal dynamic or whether it's due to the influence from other medical traditions from the West, for example. It's an open question, but I think it's an interesting question. To explore, uh, and finally, is that, that I want to say a little bit about uh, my second book project, which is somehow coming from uh, my study of poisons. Uh, I always interested in the uh, in medicines in the global context. Uh, in in my period, is more of a trans Eurasian, Afro Eurasian context. And so, at the time when I was exploring this project, poison, I was curious to explore whether any foreign poisons. Uh, were imported into Chinese pharmacy. And I didn't find that many. And the reason of that is connected to this idea of the divergence between do and other type of understanding poison in other cultures, uh, which uh, uh, I, 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 I won't elaborate here. But the bottom line is that instead of finding many imported poisons, I found many uh, antidotes. Uh, imported from other places, and particular uh, aromatics, uh, the substances with aromas from South, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, uh, this includes saffron, cam, camphor, frankincense, and they acquired diverse uses in Chinese society, uh, medical uses for sure, but also religious uses, often uh, incense burning, right? and, and also in the culinary culture. With China, so this is something that I find particularly interesting to explore. Uh, sort of expanding the study of medicine in a more transnational context. To think about, you know, who are the actors uh, importing uh, these aromatics or Xiang in Chinese into uh, China, uh, and how did the foreign knowledge were adopted and integrated into the local, you know, uh, regions. You know, there is a negotiation going on there. And and also the history of smells, right, or fractal knowledge, because these aromatics often emit strong smells, how that knowledge informed medical understanding and religious uses of these substances uh in medieval China. So these are some of the questions I'm really interested in. Uh explore and interacting with scholars on the Sucral studies and the history of senses to uh to uh further pursue uh this project.
1: Sounds fascinating, and I will be on the lookout to, to you know, once once uh, they they get published to to read, and you know, hopefully invite you again for for thank a you new so interview. Fun. Yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, let's hope it's not. It won't take me another ten years to <laughs> finish this project. You know, that's the hope.
1: Yeah. Sure, but you know, I'm I'm really looking forward, and I want to thank you very much for talking to us today.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Anupaska, for this opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you.